Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's C-Suite Conversations podcast with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged to be your host and interviewer each week. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where each week we interview business titans, best-selling authors, celebrities, researchers, people who have perhaps may not be a household name but have learned or Research something that benefits us all. And from the success of that podcast, we spun this off with a podcast focused on members of the C-suite, people like you and I that have had remarkable careers but have agreed to come on and talk a little bit about their successes and maybe even their failures. And today we have a medical doctor in the house. His name is Dr. Owen Garrick. He is the uh, medical doctor and is the chief medical officer of CVS Health Clinical Trial Services. Say that, it's a tongue twister. And He's on the East Coast today. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Scott, it is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Garrick, um, you've got a great history academically, not to mention professionally. You have an undergraduate in psychology from Princeton University. You, of course, have an MBA from Wharton and somehow along the way managed to go to the Yale Medical School and become a medical doctor. And you pivoted, of course, into corporate America now as a CMO at uh, uh, CVS, a place that I frequent frequently and help to add to your 401k. You're welcome. Great store, great company. Thank you. Great we culture. appreciate the support. Uh, please talk a little bit about the parts I missed. I mean, your resume reads like the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Perhaps that might be your future once again. Walk our listeners and viewers through your academic and professional career. Sure. Well, I have to get a law degree. I have to figure that out. <laughs> where I can go to law school. Oh, sure, kick a guy when he's down. Thanks a lot, yeah. So yeah, you know, as a kid, I always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, It was a pretty simple thing, take care of patients, make my grandparents proud. So, and there weren't any physicians at the time in the family, certainly several nurses. And now I have a brother-in-law who's a physician, but it was really just um, a thing I had in my mind. I remember when I was three or four, someone asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, a doctor. Wow. And just pursued that passion you know, was pre-med at that small school in New Jersey uh, and had this interest in business, which I couldn't quite figure out back then, uh, but it's certainly been an evolution for me and, you know, have, um, you know, I I hope and I think I have had a pretty good uh, career thus far, but you had this interest in business, was trying to figure that out, Um, went to medical school uh, at Yale, but before then I actually worked for a couple years as an analyst at MetLife in New York. Like I said, still trying to think through what does this um, business interest mean? And then, it, you know, I had a little bit of an epiphany when I was at Yale um, between the first and second years of medical school. I worked at Merck in the vaccine division uh, and there met tons of physicians on the business and helping lead uh, a great company. And that was an aha moment for me. It was, you know, come to a place like Merck, help launch a drug that cures two million people worldwide. And I figure you, you do that once in life, that's a pretty good career. So that began um, in my interest in, in business, and I went to business school uh, at Wharton. Uh, and then the, the rest, is a, they say, is history. But for me, it really began uh, doing a little bit of healthcare banking uh, in New York, and then eventually getting into industry proper, uh, and eventually into clinical trials, where I've spent maybe the last uh, 20 years and now chief medical officer at clinical trials at CVS. Amazing, amazing vision. You mentioned when you were three, you knew you wanted to be a doctor. I have three sons with my wife that are now 8, 10, and 12. When my oldest was in kindergarten, I have it on video. He was asked, 
what he wanted to be. And he raised his hand and said, car wash worker. He wanted to work at a car wash. So maybe he meant right. car wash entrepreneur of multiple franchises, but I wish for him your clarity. Uh, you're passionate about the medical industry. You work now on the CVS side. I know mm -hmm. you've written a lot and talked about equity in healthcare. Remind all of us the struggles with access to vaccines and information, education and healthcare, and to the extent there still is inequality in access. Talk about how all of us can be part of that solution. Yeah, and I appreciate that. There's certainly been clearly progress, right? But if you ask those on uh, on one end of the spectrum, there certainly is probably a, a pretty vocal and loud voice saying not enough progress. You know, on the positive end, you th see things like um, patient access programs, which, in you know, provide affordable drugs at affordable prices to individuals. You certainly see increases in coverage in healthcare. We're talking mainly in the U.S. Um, the, it's a little different um, globally. You know, as the, as the payer is the government versus, and we certainly have the payer here as the government, but you have largely, um, in large part, employer-sponsored health insurance. I mean, you need a job to get that employer-sponsored health insurance. Um, so there's certainly been some progress. You know, specifically if you look at clinical trials, you know, where you know I spend most of my time, there has historically been a, a lack of representation of all comers, right? And the you look at clinical trials, you study a small population to really understand the larger population. And the clinical trials work best if that small population you know, looks like um, and, and actually has members of that larger population. So you want young and old men and women, people of different ethnicities. And historically, there has been an underrepresentation of both women um, or females um, as well as people of color. Um, and the real issue there is you can't know for sure if a drug works in an individual unless he or she participates in that clinical trial. Um, so you're getting uh, more and more, or you've historically had drugs approved and not quite sure if they work in all populations. So you're, you're in essence, in some respects, continuing the clinical trial um, after it's, it, it's marketed and, and oftentimes that's uh, too late. Dr. Garrick, I think I read once where CVS Health estimates that about 30% of all participants in clinical trials drop out. Is there a similarity in retention of people in trials like there is in uh, re retaining employees in business and customers on the retail side? What are the, what are the uh, challenges you face with retention inside of clinical trials? The real issue is we focus a lot on recruitment. So getting people in the door, it's like thinking about a career, getting a foot in the door sort of step one. You know, having a career, getting promoted, be, being supported, you know, having a company engage with you and give you extra training um, and really think about you for the long term. We spend less time focused on that. And so you see similar things in whether that be retail um, or, health, or certainly in clinical trials. So a lot of focus on in, um, recruitment. So getting randomized or enrolled into a study and less of a focus on retention. So making sure you stay in a, a study. And why, why is retention important? So if we take the example of a blood pressure medication, it might take around 90 days to begin to see an effect. So you want a patient or a research participant to stick around for at least those first 90 days to see if the compound begins to show an effect. And then that's great, but you also want to make sure that there's a long-term sustained um, effect and impact of that potential new medication. So you want that individual to stick around for, you know, 12 months of the study. So that when we talk about having more robust data, 
more robust data comes when people stick around and stay long-term in a trial. Now to your, your question around, you know, is it, is it similar to retail? Certainly you want customers, you want customers to trial you. Um, um, and then you also want them to come back and have, you know, long-term relationships. We also see it in, in on the payer side. So CVS also owns um, Aetna, right? And it's very important in Aetna for patients to think about their long-term health um, and, you know, uh, sustain medication therapy or treatments therapy, or even a focus on prevention. So um, a lot of the similarities of the work that um, our colleagues at CVS, whether that be CVS retail um, or pharmacy, as well as Aetna, you know, have the same um, thoughts and concerns. What makes a great physician? You know, when we, we think about physicians, we think about someone that's done a tremendous amount of education and practitioner work and residencies and fellowships, and you hope that they're highly competent when they come out of their uh, medical training. And we also hope that they're relatable. We hope that they're human and have empathy, that they don't just rush us through the system and that they admit perhaps when they made a mistake. As you, uh, as you obviously have hit the pinnacle of any career in your industry, and you look back and if you were speaking to a group of physicians, what would you tell them about what makes a great physician? I would say, to, oh, so the basics you mentioned is having the, the core capabilities and understanding medicine and healthcare. But the, the two really important things are um, being relatable. And why that's important is you want to um, achieve two things. One, you want to be able to communicate health information that people understand and stop speaking doctorese, right? So have them really understand their condition, how they got there, what they can do, and what this treatment is designed to do. So the why, right, of, of their um, not, you know, not participation in a trial, but the why of why they're engaging in this um, healthcare journey um, and why it's important to them. Uh, the other part is you want to have um, some compassion uh, because a lot of medicine isn't just about prescribing new therapies or drugs or having surgery or installing a medical device. It really is about you know, behavior change. So the more relatable you are and you can communicate health information, that um, I think makes patients um, think more about what you're saying and begin to put into effect some changes in their life. So they get off of that um, high blood pressure medication or that di diabetes medication. So being relatable, really understanding healthcare, which leads to behavior change, which is really the key. We, we go into medical thinking, medical, medical school thinking, I have to memorize these facts and figures, and you certainly do, but it's really around relating to your patients, having your patients relating to you because they'll trust you um, and they'll, they'll begin to think about what they can change in their lives to get to more of a healthier uh, lifestyle versus sticking on medications. Let's talk about vaccines for a moment. I'd like to get your likely prejudiced um, opinion. Uh, I was at a, a, an event a night ago, one night ago, where I had two friends. One, that same day, had just gotten their COVID booster, their shingles shot, and their flu vaccine. And the person to my right never gets a flu shot, did not get a vaccine for COVID ever, and didn't even know there was a vaccine for shingles. And they both are highly educated corporate professionals. 
Obviously, there is still, you know, a polarity of opinions on vaccines and such. I myself had four COVID shots, four Moderna shots and two boosters. What would you like us to know from your point of view about the efficacy of vaccines? We hear that, you know, every couple of years, the flu shot hits it and misses it. You do your best to guess. I don't know all of that. What, what, what do you think is a reasonable uh, opinion you wish more people had about vaccinations? Yeah, and I think it's right to emphasize your point. I- my career started in the vaccine division of a big company. So I skew, I'm a big believer in vaccines. And when we think about vaccines, I would argue probably the best or the biggest public health impact next to clean running water. Um, and, And it gets back to this notion of prevention is a lot better than treatment. Economically, health wise, you know, how, you know, socially, so vaccines are really the cornerstone of prevention in in modern medicine. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I want to make make sure that, that that's my bias. Um, that said, you have lots of individuals who question uh, the science and not unreasonably so. Right. So these vaccines, in particular, the covid vaccines came came along fairly fast, given uh, or compared to um, most other vaccines. Sure. Now, the reason for that, right, was we had the best minds, virtually unlimited resources, um, and some would argue our existence as a species was at stake, right? So you had everyone pouring um, their mind, their time, their talents into developing these vaccines. Um, and, I th- and I think that the science is, is, is solid. You know, we can probably, you know, clinicians, especially doctors, as I mentioned, earlier don't always communicate the best. So probably, you know, thinking through how we might better communicate that. Um, that said, you're not going to convince everyone. Um, you can't convince everyone to take flu shots, to take high blood pressure medicines, to, you know, manage your diet and exercise. Um, so you do the best you can. And, you know, fortunately, most people, um, certainly in the U.S., you know, have taken uh, the vaccine. Um, so I think we're, gonna, we're in decent shape there. Let's talk about your leadership um, point of view post-COVID. I'm guessing like all of us, you're a changed person. You lead a team, you have a family, you have friends. How have you changed as a result of being a clinician and a medical doctor and a leader from how you were before COVID two years ago? The biggest thing for me has been flexibility, right? So before the pandemic, I was not a work from home guy couldn't do it, wouldn't think about doing, wasn't comfortable, didn't feel I could be productive. Then you're forced into a situation. Um, and for me, I began to think, well, what other, what other situations are people just forced into that I don't even think about, right? So that, uh, that allowed me to think through how to be flexible, understanding, getting to know people more. The beauty of you know working from home is you have a, literally a window into an individual's life. Kids pop up and down, pets sort of go across the screen. Um, so you get to know, I have certainly um, taken that as an opportunity to get to know folks um, even more personally and understanding um, the human condition and being frankly a bit more compassionate um, mm-hmm. and flexible to allow individuals to work at their pace. Now there's been some learning there. There are some folks that, you know, like to send emails out at 10, 11 o'clock at night because 
you know, they've uh, done their eighth web conference and, you know, finally ate dinner and put the kids to bed and maybe got some exercise and now they can respond to some email. But you have to set the expectation that you don't need to be up if you're on the receiving end of that email to respond at one in the morning. Um, so there's there certainly have been some learnings. Uh, but the one thing that I, I, I've uh, come I've I've taken from this experience is really thinking through flexible work environments um, and really getting to understand people much, much more. Let's talk about the future of medicine, if you will. If you look at the up and coming next generation of medical professionals, uh, whether it be PAs or MDs or nurses or whoever, what do you think we should expect in terms of how the medical industry will change, at least here in the U.S.? You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm now a little more seasoned, uh, long in the tooth, as some folks might say. And I remember, you know, being young and you, know, you, you look at the older docs and clinicians and they would always, you know, give you stories about, you know, I walked to medical school three miles in the in the rain and snow uphill both ways. So you have sort of as you get older, sort of a, a little bit of that mindset for the young folks. But what what I found and really been inspired by is this continued energy, passion, interest in medicine and science, um, but also looking at people differently and seeing people for who they are. You know, terms like social determinants of health were not terms that we we talked about or frankly learned about. And there are now sort of entire fields around that, right? Because the real we we have the realization that health isn't just something you engage with in a physician's office or in a hospital or in front of a PA or a nurse. It is really around things like food insecurity, your work-life balance, your access to, to the ability to exercise. And I think the younger people are having this much more holistic view of healthcare, which I feel can only be for um, uh, the better. Let's talk about the next pandemic. We're coming up on three years where as Americans, we started to hear about this thing called COVID, of course, in Asia and really, you know, really first of the year. But, you know, we're, we're six months out from hitting three years and, and it was pandemonium. Whether you were pro or right. anti-mask or pro or anti-vaccine, you know, there were phrases like shelter in place. And, you know, that sounds like a World War II statement. I mean, it was, you know, I don't know if I should wash my grocery bags or buy more toilet paper or, you know, hunker down and not leave the house. I mean, I remember in... April of 2020, where you'd pass someone on the sidewalk in the middle of the day and you would both like walk in the grass for fear you might get COVID from them, right? And then, in my opinion, fortunately, the vaccine came and we participated. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give us, regardless of what political fence we're on or what state we live in or who we voted for or what our point of view is, what should we think about differently when the next pandemic comes? How is the government better positioned? How are healthcare providers, insurers, hospitals, retailers, clinicians, right. what, what, what should we look forward to when the next pandemic comes? I think the, the biggest thing is gonna be, or at least the initial thing will be the amount of uncertainty at the beginning. Because new disease, new vector, not sure how serious it is, not exactly sure how it spreads. So to the degree you can get comfortable with that uncertainty, and given that, realizing that you're going to have to be uh, have to be flexible and adjust. Now, it's a little bit of, it's a little challenging because we 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 often look for the one answer. What should I do? 
um, and that what you should do has changed fairly dramatically um, during this COVID time. And it frankly, you know, can change month to month um, because you might have surges, uptakes in terms of uh, infection and increased hospitalization and death. So that has been for me the biggest learning given frankly, a lot of our public health officials and leaders some grace uh, because they're not gonna get it exactly right or they might have it right that week, um, but be a little wrong the following week. So that's sort of the, the learnings and I, I hope we can take into uh, the next pandemic once we get out, frankly, of, of this pandemic. Well, it's encouraging. I think a lot of it has to do also with the clarity of communication from governmental leaders. And like you said, recognizing maybe on the citizenry part, we gotta be, we got to be a little more forgiving, right? Because people at the CDC or the NIH, they might get it right this week, but it might be wrong next week given how fast moving it is. I appreciate your, um, your, your latitude on that. Uh, tell us what you've learned about leadership along the way. Obviously, you're in a leadership position. You're a medical mm-hmm. doctor. You have an MBA. You have both you know, for-profit, not-for-profit experience. What have you learned to be true about what it means to be a great leader? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Your team is going to make mistakes. And oftentimes, it is you have as much information as possible. Your thought process, your decision-making might be right but you're gonna be wrong, right? You're gonna be wrong in terms of, you know, should we shelter in place versus should we not to, you know, how fast should we allow folks to get back to whatever normal life means. So understanding that you will be wrong and being able to learn from those mistakes, I think is to me um, as a leader, probably the most critical lesson uh, I have learned and also to give those that work with you, above you, um, uh, that report to you, that freedom, that space to take appropriate risk, be wrong at times, um, and also frankly keep their jobs and keep their careers and continue to grow and learn. Dr. Garrett, thank you for joining us today. You are the Chief Medical Officer of CVS Health Clinical Trial Services. Joining us from the East Coast today, I appreciate your time. Thanks for bringing some clarity to what a lot of us are you know, invested in as parents and as colleagues and companies and recognizing we've all been through a traumatic experience the last two plus years and probably need to take those lessons and prepare for the next as well. Do you, do you expect that there will be similar pandemic type um, experiences in our own generation? Is, is the education or the prevention such where it comes once in a lifetime? I know you can't predict it, or is it something we should, as a human race, be prepared to experience perhaps several times in our lifetime? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. One, I certainly hope not, right? Uh, and certainly couldn't predict it. You know, they seem to be once in a, just like that whole once in a hundred year flood line you know, that seems to be more uh, the norm, um, but it, it is it is hard uh, to know. My sense is, you know, to the degree we can memorialize some of the lessons learned, the better we will be prepared for the next one, because the next one will happen at some point. Okay, last question, a little bit of a curveball. It's not every day we have a medical doctor on our program. I want you to give us just some general great medical health advice. I, I read once where, Back before Dr. Oz became a Senate candidate, 
uh, on his program, I'm not sure if he's an internist or what kind of doctor he is, he once gave some advice that the best medical advice he had was brush your teeth and floss your teeth. That flossing your teeth was really a key part of overall health. Give us two or three tips on things that anybody can do starting today that could help their overall general health. Straightforward, diet and exercise. Now, one of the things that the pandemic got, I was not a runner. Uh, I started running during the pandemic because I wasn't going to the gym. Because one, gyms were closed for a fair amount of time. And I, I went old school, push-ups and sit-ups. They are free. You can pretty much do them anywhere. Uh, and then diet, the other thing. I mean, you don't have to eat carrots and celery all the time, but really just modulate um, your, your intake. And if you manage those two things, um, tons of chronic conditions go away. Dr. Owen Garrett, thank you for joining C-Suite Conversations today. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate you. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. 